Question 47, what is, let's think about what's forbidden. So what is this commandment forbidding us to do? What is forbidden in the first commandment? The first commandment forbids the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to him alone. I want to draw your attention to the back of the bulletin. I saw this this week, and I had to comment on it in the bulletin, and I want to comment on it now as we think about going to the Lord's table. You know, the, the world's a mess, isn't it? A lot of unrest. We've got war in Ukraine. We've got war in the Middle East. Who knows what the next weeks and months look like? God knows. But maybe you saw this. Pope Francis had all Roman Catholics unite their hearts, and he invited, you know, other religions to unite together on a special day of fasting and prayer. And then Pope Francis proceeded to lead the world's Roman Catholics in a prayer to Mary. You know, I put an excerpt, I put two paragraphs of his prayer here. And it is troubling to think that in the world there are 1.4 billion Roman Catholics. And think about that, 1.4 billion. There are in the world about roughly, best guess, 300 million evangelicals. 1.4 billion Roman Catholics under the leadership Pope Francis, and he is directing them to pray to Mary. The first commandment forbids the denying we're not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other. I mean, look, just notice the prayer. Just follow me as I read. To you, and th this is the Pope praying to Mary, not to God. To you we entrust and consecrate our lives and every fiber of our being all that we possess and all that we are forever. To you we consecrate the church so that in her witness to the love of Jesus before the world, she may be a sign of harmony and an instrument of peace. To you we consecrate our world. To you we consecrate especially those countries and regions at war. Your faithful people call you the dawn of salvation. Mother, grant that glimmers of light may illumine the dark night of conflict. Dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, inspire the leaders of nations to seek paths of peace. Queen of all peoples, reconcile your children seduced by evil, blinded by power and hate. You who are close to all, shorten our distances. You who have compassion on everyone, teach us to care for one another. You who reveal the Lord's tender mercy or tender love, make us witnesses of his consolation and peace. Mother, Queen of Peace, pour forth into our hearts God's gift of harmony. Amen. It's idolatry. 
It's idolatry. And 1.4 billion people who adhere to that faith are led to believe that that's how you pray. Jesus taught us to pray what? Our Father who art in heaven. And we do not pray through anyone but through Jesus. We pray in his name. My message today from John chapter 8 is Jesus' words, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. We live in a dark time. And it's scary. We live in a dark world. But we have a lot of deception and darkness afoot in what is called Christianity. If we are to worship God properly, we must do so in spirit and in truth. And the truth is there is one God. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who purchased for us salvation. And if we trust him and him alone, we are saved. It's a simple gospel. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to John's gospel? We're in chapter 8. Last week we studied verses 1 through 11. And we looked at the beautiful story of the woman whom Jesus forgave. She was caught in adultery. It could have been any sin. Hers was adultery. But it was that point of confrontation in her soul. Yes, everybody was against her. Everybody was accusing her. That's really the sideshow. We looked at that last week. That's the sideshow. It still happens in our lives today. We sin. We fail. Other people accuse us. Other people denigrate us. Other people mock us. But in the end, the reality is we have to have a confrontation with God. We have to stand before God. We have to give an account. And Jesus answers and says, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. It's at that point she's regenerated. She's born again. Her life is transformed. And then Jesus, in that same context, Feast of Booths, as we've been studying, chapter 7, chapter 8, all happening in that great festive season of the Jews, which, by the way, was, if you remember, that's what was going on in the world when Hamas comes out of Gaza, raids into Israel this year during this great festive season, the highlight of the Jewish year. And this is a time that is pivotal pivotal in the life and ministry of Jesus, just about six months before his execution, going to the cross for our sin. And he's there in Jerusalem and he's teaching. And so following this interaction with this woman whom he has forgiven, again, and we're going to read from verse 12 to verse 20, again, Jesus spoke to them and he said, I am the light of the world. 
Those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. In the darkness we were waiting. Without hope, without light. Till from heaven you came running. Jesus spoke to them and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me. Not just whoever names my name and calls himself a Christian. Whoever follows. This is the essence of being a disciple. A disciple, a disciple is not someone who knows a lot about Jesus, although we should know a lot of things about Jesus. We should know a lot of things about the Bible. And all those things are important, but that's not what a disciple of Jesus is. A disciple of Jesus is someone who follows Jesus. And he says, whoever follows, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. They will have the light that brings what? Life. Think with me of the link between light and life. You cannot have life without light. Life is really dependent on light. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have light, the light, that will germinate the seed of God's word and bring life. So the Pharisee said to him, well, you're just bearing witness to yourself, so your testimony isn't true. Now, let's set that in the context of what we just studied in chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. What was the big deal that Jesus was talking about? Two or three witnesses. And so Jesus had said, you know, to the Jewish leaders who dragged this woman before him, let him who was without stones, or without stones, let him who was without sin be the first to cast the stone. And that was all contingent on there needing to be two or three witnesses in order for there to be a legitimate case against the woman. And so this idea of witnessing has just factored big into the narrative, and now they go right back to it, and they say, well, you're just witnessing about yourself, so, well, we can't trust your witness. How do we know that that is true, that that's reliable? Jesus answered, well, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from. I know where I am going. But you don't know where I came from, and you do not know where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. Very close to what we studied a few weeks ago back in chapter 7, when Jesus said, do not judge according to appearances. Very close to that statement. You judge according to human standards. I judge no one. There again, Jesus had just demonstrated that. Right? Neither do I condemn you. I don't judge anyone. 
Did Jesus judge the Pharisees and the scribes who came to him with an accusation testing? No, he did not judge them. He simply spoke the truth to them, and who judged who? They judged themselves. What happened? Jesus spoke the truth. He said, if you are without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. He goes back down in the dirt, and he's writing in the dirt. And their conscience was pricked by what he said, and they left from the oldest to the youngest. They judged themselves. So Jesus sits here saying, I don't judge anyone. I just speak the truth, and the truth judges you. And then you judge yourself. This is the condemnation. This is the judgment, Jesus said in John 3. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Why are coyotes prowling at night? Because they have evil intent. And he says, men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds are evil. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. But you walk away from it. Now, notice what he then says. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. The Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. That's going to come back big time in this discourse. And at the end of it, he is going to say, God is my Father. And before Abraham was, I am. And they're going to pick up stones to stone him. That's where all of this is going. And the whole concept of fatherhood. Jesus is going to say, my father. They're going to say, our father is Abraham. And you know what Jesus is going to say to them? No. You are of your father, the devil. Oh, boy, that's politically correct and secret sensitive, isn't it? Jesus is going to say to the religious leaders of his day, you are not of Abraham. Abraham is not your father. You are of your father, the devil. And the works of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and departed from the truth. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. And so he says, you don't know my father. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father too. And these words he spoke in the treasury. The treasury is annexed in the temple to what is called the court of the women. When people come into the temple complex, after coming through the open porticos and into the temple proper, they're going to come into what is called the court of the women. And so there in the court of the women is where Jesus cast out the money lenders, overturned the tables. 
It is here in the court of the women that everyone can assemble. And then you have the court itself, the holy place where only priests can go, the holiest of holies where only the high priest can go, where the Shekinah glory of God at one time would rest upon the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. But they were in this large portico, this large court called the court of women, which is factoring big into our message this morning. When Jesus is having this conversation with them, and it says no one arrested him. And it was not because they didn't want to. They hated him. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. That's a few months down the road. Let's jump into it. I am the light of the world. This is the light of the world discourse. It's going to take up the remainder of the chapter. In this chapter, Jesus is talking about judgment. He is also talking about witnesses. If you remember in chapter 5, he talked about witnesses when he told them, you should have recognized me because the Father testified at my baptism. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Then the baptizer himself, John the Baptist, testified I, I was told by the Spirit, John said, that the one whom you see the Spirit descending upon and remaining, he is the one. And so John said what? Behold, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. And so the baptizer testified or witnessed concerning Jesus. And then the works that Jesus did in chapter 5 also testified that Jesus is the Messiah. These people should not have missed him, and yet they did. Now, Jesus is forcing a verdict. That's what's going on here. Jesus is bringing all these events together in his earthly ministry, and he is forcing a verdict by the Jewish leaders on who he is. He's not going to let these people off easy. He is going to make them decide. And so he is bringing this to a culmination in this light of the world discourse. We're going to talk about judgment. We're going to talk about witnesses. Jesus is going to come back to them, and he's going to say to them, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen. He's going to talk to them about fatherhood. They're going to say, we are of our father Abraham. He's going to say, ah, no, my true children are the ones who follow me. They are the ones who are the sons of Abraham. But you are of your father the devil. And then he's going to bring it all the way around to the end when he talks about Abraham. And he's going to say, Abraham was in heaven rejoicing. I mean, he was, he was praising God at the throne. Abraham was rejoicing to see my day. And he saw it and he was glad. And they're going to say, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say you saw Abraham? He's going to say, before Abraham was, I am. And they are going to pick up stones to stone him. And yet there again, they can't do it. They want to do it. They want to stone him. They wanted to stone a woman. Now they want to stone their Messiah. But they can't do it. The stone won't come out of their hand. It's not his hour. He slips away. I am the light of the world. Now remember, this is the Feast of Booths. You go to... What do they call the thing? Star Valley Fair? Our county fair? There's a lot of booths there. 
That's not what these booths were, right? We already talked about that. These were palm booths that were a reminder to them of the tabernacles that they lived in for the 40 years in the wilderness. So remember, booths, the Feast of Booths, was a remembrance of what God did in providing for his people when they were wandering in the wilderness. That's all in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, those books of the Bible that are hard to read, that a lot of times you forget to read. The only time you do it is when you're doing read the Bible in a year. But we need to read them because it gives a context to many things that are in the New Testament. And so this is the Feast of Booths. Now, you will remember that we already talked about the water ceremony, that on the great day of the feast, the high priest would go to the pool, and he would draw out water, and he would return. And they would be singing the Hillels, and they would say, out of the pools of water, we draw salvation from the book of Isaiah. And it was a great ceremony. And in the midst of that return, on the great day of the feast, Jesus stands up in the crowd. And he says, if any of you is thirsty, come to me and drink. Remember that? We studied that. And then he said, if anyone believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And he was reminding them how God had Moses strike the rock in the wilderness. And from the rock came forth rivers of living water. And Jesus says, you're not going to strike any rocks and you're not going to find any water there. No, I am the water of life. Come to me and drink. And so Jesus takes that situation from the Old Testament at Meribah and he teaches about himself in the water ceremony. At Booth's, maybe you remember this from when Dr. Sadaka was with us, he talked about what was going on in the fall ceremonies at Booth's. One of the things that was central to the Jewish celebration of Booth's during the days of the temple. Now, there's not a temple in Judea now, is there? There's not a temple in Jerusalem. That's yet to come when it's rebuilt. You see all that in the scripture. That's going to happen. I don't know when. None of us knows when, but it's going to happen. But in the court of the women that we already talked about, this area, this portico, they would set up in each of the corners these festive lamps. There were four of them then, because there's four corners. Referring to what? The four corners of the globe. That's the Jewish picture. These lamps were 75 feet tall. Think of that. I mean, that's pretty tall, isn't it? 75 feet. A lamp that is erected in each corner of the temple, 75 feet tall, with a huge basin of olive oil, and it would burn in order to illuminate the court and to illuminate the entire complex of the temple. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a lampstand and put it under a bushel basket. No, you put it out there to what? Give light, shine. And so they were showing through this 
at the temple complex, the light of the glory of God, and everybody could see it. Now, remember there again, these are not people that were living in a world like ours. We all talk now today about kind of things like, you know, light pollution at night. Now, I am very thankful that where our ranch sits, we can't even see another house. You know, so when I go out at night to lock in the chickens, it's usually the last thing that I do for the day before I go to bed is I always remember, I gotta go out and shut the hatch on the chickens. So either Amy or I will do it. We'll go out and shut the hatch. And there's hardly a night goes by that when I walk out to shut the hatch on the chickens, I don't stop down there by the fence and lean against it and look up and find the Big Dipper, look for the North Star, and praise God for the glory of the heavens. And there's no other light to kind of get in my way. But today, we live in a light that there's just light everywhere, right? We really take it for granted. But in the ancient world, there were no street lights. Kids, there were no night lights. That'd be a hazard, you know. It just, unless somebody lit a lantern in the house, and it wasn't a lantern like we think of today, that's kind of a safety device. No, these are just like crude little bowls with a wick in it that you would light. They didn't even have much for candles because candles were kind of nasty, stinky things of the day. You know, they were made out of mutton fat and things like that. And they kind of stunk up your house. So did olive oil to some. Have you ever lit olive oil? You know, you go buy perfumed stuff. Sometimes just, I had to do it because I had to see. Does it really work? So I got some olive oil out of the pantry once, put it in a bowl, put a wick in it and lit it. It does burn. But it's kind of smoky. It kind of stinks like burning olive oil. And it doesn't give off a lot of light in your house. Now think of that's your only light. So these are people who are used to, when the sun went down, that's why at that time, used to be that this is the way the world operated. You know, when the sun came up, everybody got out of bed. When the sun went down, it was time to close down shop. And they didn't worry a whole lot about turning back clocks and all that stuff, because they just operated according to the sun. We now live in a world where we can just have all this artificial light. They didn't have it. So for them to come to a place, to come to a temple, and to see it illuminated in this way is kind of a stunning sight. It is stunning to them. Now, let's just do this real quick. There are three IMs, we've already discussed this, that are related to the wilderness wanderings. One was in chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and he was relating that to the manna. In chapter 7, he said, I am the river of life, and he was talking about the water of Meribah. Here, he says, I am the light of the world, and he is reminding them of the Shekinah glory cloud. So all of these things are related to Israel in the wilderness. Remember with me what God did in the wilderness? This is a stunning miracle. Let's go and look at it real quickly. Shekinah, there are three passages I'm going to draw. This, by the way, comes from a Hebrew word. It's a transliteration that just means the glory cloud, the light of God's glory that was hovering around the people of Israel. We're going to look at Exodus 13, chapter 33, and chapter 40. Let's do it real quick. When Pharaoh let the people go, remember 10 plagues? 
They culminate with the worst one, which was all the firstborn die, and the Passover is instituted. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines. Now, we all know where Gaza is today, right? Gaza's in the news. It's where? Gaza is the land of the Philistines. From Egypt to the promised land, in this day, there is a highway. And you could get from Egypt to Palestine, you could do it in under a week with two million people, easy. You would not cross a Red Sea. You would be on the coastal plain where you could put your feet in the beach, you know, go walk on the beach and put your feet in the surf. And it is an easy journey. There are no mountains. There are no passes. Nothing. Why didn't God give them the easy road? Well, this is instructive to us. God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, the people will change their mind and return to Egypt if they face war. God knew if they got there too quick, they were going to be facing the Canaanites really quickly, and they were not ready to do it. So, he led the people around toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness. And ultimately, they're going to be out there in that wilderness for how long? 40 years. And the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. So Moses took the bones of Joseph. Because Joseph had said what? When, I, when you leave here, because God's going to do it, I want you to dig up my bones, take them with you. Because I want to be buried in the promised land. And then, notice what happens. So they go from Succoth, they camp at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And this is how God led them. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. God led them. He did it by his Shekinah glory. In Exodus 33, there's another passage that talks about the glory. So Moses took a tent. He set it outside the camp. Now, this is not the tabernacle. This is Moses' tent that he sets up. It predates the tabernacle. This is not where the altar is. But Moses took a tent, and he set it outside the camp, far away from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. And anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. When Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand up, each at the door of his tent. They would watch Moses until he entered into the tent. When Moses entered the tent the pillar of cloud would come down and it would stand at the entrance to the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. 
And all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent. They would stand up and they would bow and worship each one at the door of his tent. The Lord spoke with Moses face to face. Man, that's pretty rich. The same way he does to us, except now at a throne of grace. Moses face to face, just as man speaks with his friend. And Moses would return to the camp. Now, this is the first mention of a guy that's pretty cool. But his assistant, a young man named Joshua, would not leave the inside of that tent. This is a guy who was consulting with the Lord and was seeking the Lord. It sets him up to be faithful. Now, here's what happens in chapter 40. So next, now Moses setting up the tabernacle. This is the end of the book of Exodus. Moses set up the courtyard for the tabernacle, the altar. He hung a screen for the gate of the courtyard, and Moses finished the work. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it. And the Shekinah glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So here we now see the tabernacle is finished. And when the tabernacle itself is finished, the altars are set up. The work is done. Then the Shekinah glory of God fills that tabernacle. The children of Israel knew these verses. And they knew that those lampstands in the courtyard of women were reminding them of these texts. And Jesus says, now, don't look at that. Don't look at that lamp over there. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, just as in the wilderness you followed the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, if you follow me, then you will not walk in darkness. You will have light that will lead to life. Wow. Light is a theme in John already. In chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, we saw it. The light has come into the world. The true light has come into the world. We saw it in chapter 3, verses 19. I already mentioned that. This is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Okay, we've got to do this real quick. Properties of light that illustrate Jesus. Here we go. Number one, the Shekinah assured God's people of his presence. It never departed. Did the children of Israel always obey God? No, in fact, what? A lot of times, the Shekinah glory cloud of God was present to chasten them. And they dropped dead, like flies. I don't know about you, we live in a cabin, the flies have been horrible. 
The other day I went into our guest cabin, I opened the door, went into the cabin. As I went into that guest cabin, there were flies just like falling down my shirt. Oh, they were dropping like flies. So were the children of Israel. Now, the Shekinah assures God's people of his presence, number one, to protect, number two, to direct. Remember, to protect, that's what God did at the Red Sea. When the glory cloud moves and stands between the armies of Egypt and the Israelites as they go across the Red Sea. And then lifts up and they go into the water and they all drown. So this is a reminder. God, who is the light, Jesus is the light. His presence protects us, his people. It directs us and it illumines our path. Jesus illumines our life. The world is a dark place. When you think about light, number one, it illuminates the darkness. Number two, not only does it illuminate or direct us, number two, it eliminates, it disinfects, doesn't it? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Light is a very good disinfectant. And Jesus disinfects our life by killing sin. Put a little light on it. We want to hide sin. Jesus wants to eliminate it. It enlivens. It is essential for life. The essential element of an environment in which life can thrive is light. But men love darkness. It's a dark world. There's the darkness of denial. There's the darkness of deception. There's the darkness of decadency. And we'll see all three of them in this chapter as we go through it. Men love darkness. Strongest impulse of the natural human man is denial. To deny reality. Things are not good out there. Are they? No. But who wants to think about it? Deny reality. I was listening to a speech this week that Tucker Carlson gave um, at an institute of leadership. It was a really interesting speech. But in the speech he was talking about, he was flying from Pakistan, this was like 20 years ago, on, an, on a French Airbus. When there was an explosion in the cargo hold and the Airbus crashed. Crashed in the desert off the Sea of Arabia. I didn't know that, but it happened to him. Everybody survived the flight. The pilot was able to take it down safely. But he said, as he said, it was the scariest thing he ever lived through. They heard the explosion, and the plane went to rock, and it looked like one of the wings was going to fall off. It was on fire. And the pilot was able to bring it into the sand. He looked out the window. Everything stopped. Everybody's still alive, I'm here. Looks out the window and the plane is burning. He, he was in the front row of first class. He's like ready to exit the plane. He gets up to go. He said the pilots went out the window, out the front. He gets up to get out because nobody had opened the exits. He gets up to get out, and when he gets up, the stewardess stands up in front of him and says, Sir, 
please take your seat. Everything is just fine. <laughs> he said, I looked out the window and the plane's on fire. It was clearly not fine. But she was living in a false reality. Many of us live in a false reality. And listen, everything is not fine. And I'm talking about in our physical world. I'm talking about what's coming. It's not fine. The plane's on fire. And Jesus says, if you follow me, you will not walk in darkness. I will give you light. Deception is everywhere. I got to quit, but man, I, I got sidetracked this week in my study into what was going on about two weeks ago, three weeks ago it started. And, and I really hate to ever anymore, like, denigrate other ministries or go into that because I, I, I find that it wrecks something in my heart that's not good, and that's kind of like a, a spirit of animosity and judgmentalism that I don't want. So I'm, I'm really careful. But I think this one needs to be called out because it's huge. North Point Community Church, which is Andy Stanley's church in Atlanta, Georgia. His church, I, I can't even imagine because it's bigger than most Wyoming towns, 34,000 people in attendance weekly. Can you imagine that? They got campus churches, but 34,000 people who are members of this church and over 1 million people a week visit their website to follow their ministry and listen to his sermons. He has a huge footprint. A couple weeks ago, we announced a conference that the church was going to hold. can't remember the name. I've got it written down. The name of the conference, but it was for Parents of children who were struggling with gender and transitioning to another gender and people who were struggling with LGBTQ plus da 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 issues in their life. Okay? And the keynote speakers were two couples who both claimed to be Christian, who were gay married men. And an academic, intellectual, who is a major proponent of gay theology in the evangelical church. To just read reviews of it, I'll read one review. This comes from a website associated with Sean McDowell's ministry. You ever heard of Sean McDowell? His dad, Josh McDowell, was big in apologetics. So this, was, this is a website called Stand to Reason. It said, this leads me to believe Andy Stanley is either naive or crafty. Either way, he's dangerous. He's naive if he thinks he can host the unconditional conference and it will not corrupt the church's teaching on sexual ethics or he's crafty and is using this conference to change the theology of the church and other churches, either way, he is dangerous. If I want, and then he says this, if I wanted to quietly mainstream pro-gay theology and transgender ideology into the evangelical church, 
I would create this conference. It was the perfect vehicle. The speakers never exegeted a single Bible verse. They never explained the Bible's teaching on sex and marriage, but nevertheless, they advanced a pro-gay and pro-trans theology to believers who were in attendance, like 34,000 of them. And they sold parents a false security that their kids can be right with God even if they marry someone of the same sex or transition their bodies. Whew. He went on to say it would be like saying we're going to have a pro-life conference and then inviting an abortionist from Planned Parenthood to come and speak. It doesn't matter what I say. What am I doing? Right? It doesn't matter that North Point Community Church says they believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. What are they doing? Because what they do says what they believe. Darkness is everywhere. But in that situation, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, for judgment, I am come into the world. Jesus is the light that enables us to discern truth from error, light from darkness, the path of life from the path of death. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we do live in days of darkness. There's darkness in the world. There's darkness in the church. And many are saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We know that peace comes only through Christ. Lord, just as our Savior said to this woman who was caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. But then he said, go and leave your life of sin. So too the church needs to be bold in its proclamation. What is true, because what is true is what will set us free. Lord, I pray that you would preserve us, your people, from evil and from the evil one. And so we pray in Jesus' name.